five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. That was the the clash. In case you didn't know it, the Magnificent Seven. Can you see that there's a bit of a theme here today? Can you see a bit of a theme now? Kenya. Uh, so I've listened to that song a lot. It's hard sometimes to understand Joe Strummer's vocals. I mean, really, he's kind of a shitty vocalist. But he's got a very distinctive voice. He's kind of like the punk Dylan in some ways. And, and I think he would love to be uh, considered that in some I think he would think that that was a huge compliment. When you look at the lyrics, though, and you, you really boil it down, there is a connection between the song and the Magnificent Seven, which I'm about to get into today. And if you go through the lyrics, it's really a, a, a Marxist, very danceable Marxist polemic. He even says it in, in the lyrics. He basically said uh, that Marx was poor, but he made sense. Engels lent him the necessary pence, meaning that Engels, Friedrich Engels bankrolled Marx. And make no mistake about it, the clash were Marxists. And their manager, um, <clears throat> their manager was a full-on Marxist. But, you know, he was very weird in that there, there, there's a great documentary on the clash. And there's a story uh, that's told by the one of the bodyguards of the class. He's very, when you watch the, the documentary, he's very critical of their manager um, and the band themselves in some ways. And he, and he said that uh, when you would go over to his house, all he had in his flat were uh, stacks and stacks and stacks of like, Socialist Worker Magazine. It was a magazine, I guess, they published in, in England. And so you would sit on the stacks of the magazines. There was nothing else, right? This is how, how much of a devoted Marxist this guy was. And so he put together the clash as his, uh, as his uh, musical front guard to spread his ideas. And he would give uh, Strummer and the band copies of the Marxist manifesto with lines from it that were underlined so they could incorporate them in the lyrics. This is a true story, by the way. 
and Joe Strummer is the was the son of an of an English diplomat. And anytime you see the word diplomat, just insert the word spy because that's what they are. Diplomatic outposts are are kind of where the spooks hang out, right? They get to know people, and then the spooks from that country and other countries get. To, it's all just a spook party. And uh, Strummer lived all over the world because his father was in the uh, diplomatic corps. But he was Joe Strummer was a, was a Marxist. He was really into Woody Guthrie, you know, the working man, and that's he. You can even see it in the song. And he and he, and he talks about wages, and it's all in there, right? And they're um, using what's the the popular mu- musical form at that time. How was that? The popular musical form at that time, which is hip hop. You can see that they're playing with hip hop. Like Joe Strummer's trying to rap. And they've got that pretty catchy dance beat, doom, doom, the bass, doom, 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 boom, 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 right? It's all dance floor stuff, dance rock, hip hop. It was all sort of converging in New York right around that time. They did two weeks to sold out shows at a club called Bonds which is what they refer to. It's kind of the peak of the clash. And then they would go into this really intense kind of arena rock mode and make a shit ton of money. And eventually the manager would wind up ultimately becoming a member of the band. That's what he wanted. He wanted to be a rock star. And I think he's actually on one of the last records the clash ever did without Joe Strummer. Um, they're a very interesting and strange band. I mean, they they were clearly, clearly deployed. And even the record that uh, it's actually that's not Pete Clash. Pete Clash comes with London Calling. So this song comes off of the uh, Sandinista recordings, which is really their their kind of Marxist socialist slash communist musical treatise in one of their least successful records in a lot of ways. Um, But it's an interesting connection to where we're going today with this movie, The Magnificent Seven. Now, I was on the fence today about what I wanted to talk about because somebody has shared with me some very interesting information around the Postal Service. And I want to devote a whole show to that. I didn't want to break it up and say, well, I'm going to do half of a show about uh, the Magnificent Seven in the cinematic deception and then throw some postal stuff in. It deserves its own show. So we'll do that next week because tomorrow, of course, we have the Friday forecast and we'll be joined by the Krimis and they've got some really interesting information that's valuable information about growing your own food and how you can accelerate and potentiate growing your own food. So tomorrow will be a good day. It'll be a good day. We'll have our friends at Krimis over on the 11th house and uh, we'll have nurturing, nurturing conversation. So we'll tee this up on Tuesday and we'll get into the, we'll get into the stuff, the inside baseball with uh, the postal service because it's, It's canary in the coal mine stuff. And that's a tease. 
That's a tease. We'll cover that next week. But today, we're going to dive into the sneaky deception of the movie, The Magnificent Seven. And let me just do this one thing here. I got I to gotta, uh, tee this thing up. Where are we? Uh, Amazon, 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 Amazon. How is everybody today? How are you guys doing? It's coming off astro weather, good astro weather. Let's see. It's got to go in here and uh, get the vid. Search Prime, all right, and then uh, do our little meet and greet here. They did a remake of The Magnificent Seven. Give me one second here, I'm going to do this. Here we go. All right. Let me tee this sucker up. All right, there it is. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little bit of uh, freelancing uh, through the movie to kind of show you what I'm talking about. All right, I I did it. I did it. All right, let's see who we got here. Who's in? Who's hanging? Hanging laundry's hanging. BJMC, what's going on? Miguel, Tomas, good to see you. As always, Miss Nakia is here. Another classic from DJ Phoenix. It's a catchy tune, right? But then you break it down and it's like, oh, yeah. You sneaky bastards. You sneaky bastards. Now, the question is, do some people understand it? Do they pick it up? Do they someday walk into a bookstore and after going to a show at Bonds or listening to The Magnificent Seven for maybe the sixth or seventh or eighth time, do they automatically go over to the uh, philosophy section and pick up a copy of Das Kapital? I wonder if that's ever happened. Hmm. I wonder who this Marx guy is. I mean, mm, this looks really interesting. They just happen to be a Clash fan. I bet you it's happened more than once. For some people, there's probably meatheads, and they just want to party and dance, and it doesn't really mean all that much. But this is an interesting connection, because the Clash knew about the underlying message of the movie The Magnificent Seven, which we're going to get into. Um, Sony, what's happening? Love the clash. Never saw live footage. I saw the clashes first show in the United States. And it was at the uh, Berkeley community theater, very small venue. And of course, Berkeley, California, the opening act was Pearl Harbor and the explosions and the singer Pearly Gates. That was her name would go on to uh, marry the Clash's bass player. She's a little older. She was, she was hot. 
early gay Swissant. She was Filipino. Uh, and kind of a, a, a good little local band with the Stench brothers, John and Hillary Stench. Of course, that wasn't their real names, but it was punk rock. And then Bo Diddley hit the stage and opened for The Clash. And that was cool. I loved Bo Diddley. And then... Uh, The Clash hit the stage. And the song that was playing before they came on, so of course it was queued up that way. And the song was, there's a riot going on. And it's really interesting that The Clash chose Berkeley. They didn't choose New York. They didn't choose San Francisco. They didn't choose LA. They chose Berkeley to land in the United States. Berkeley, the epicenter of the countercultural revolution. Free speech. The burning ground of education. And out of the flames of the uh, strife of the 1960s, you have the uh, Phoenix cultural Marxist Phoenix rising out of the ashes. They chose Berkeley for a reason. It was a statement. Everything about the clash was a statement. So the, so there's a riot going on in cell block nine. That was the song that was playing. And then all of a sudden it stops. The lights come on, curtain opens and the clash kick into I fought the law. And it was fucking great. I'm not going to lie. It was great. I mean, it was the energy in that uh, place was off the charts. And then I saw him again later on. And they toured with The Who. And uh, by that time, they were playing these massive stadium shows. And it's it's kind of like what happens when... Marxists get rich and they make lots of money. They struggle with their, uh, their Spartan existence, the things that keep them real, right? Making lots of cash, driving Cadillacs. They're succumbing to the, uh, the bad version of the American dream. And that's exactly what happened to the clash, especially Joe Strummer. But uh, that night in Berkeley, they were something else. Marxism, fully loaded chamber of, of Marxist bullets getting ready to be shot into our minds. They were still fucking hot and uh, rocking and furious. Sony is here. Gigi is here listening. Love from Florida. Love back at you. There's my girl. Fantastic. Cece Jones. Harriet Bowie's here. Janine. What's happening, Janine? Good to see you. Double K, Catherine Kramer. She's in the house. Rocky. I love saying Rocky. Lisa W's here. Uh, let's see. Going to leave for a walk. All right. Go enjoy that walk. And I wish it was a sunny spring morning here. We're about to get thunder and rain. Leela, LMM. Good to see you. Welcome. Those days look like another planet. I know, right? It looked like fun, didn't it? We're not having a lot of fun these days. 
I'll take the clash and their faux socialist Marxist theory bullshit and some danceable beats and just block that shit out over, over what's happening now. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have? Queen Lisa. Good to see you. Darlene Tiffer. Hi, Darlene. Uh, Crossfire Cat is here. Peachy. Peachy was on Peachy was on the couch this morning briefly. She's down. I gotta I gotta set up my new cameras. I gotta have a peachy cam. I need a peachy cam. Don't you think, Peachy? She's so funny. Her and Jasper are bonding now. They come up and they kind of rub whiskers. She's, you know, she really wants to be affectionate towards Jasper. And old Jasper's Arctic thaws or, or, or Arctic uh, exterior is thawing out a bit. Uh, even more bizarre when the Clash music is used to sell high-end luxury cars. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's the whole thing, right? This is what happens. You know, Marxism pays. I mean, I think that's why people get into it. Do you think Barack Obama didn't understand this at some point? Of course he did. I mean, look at Bill Ayers. He's fucking silver spoon in his mouth. Bill Ayers was way upper middle class. It's the upper, it's the upper middle classes or the upper class or the elites that can afford to traffic in ideas that will ultimately shred the fabric of society. They can afford to do that. And ultimately, it pays. Marxism pays. And we're in this extreme version of it now. And you have this, I don't even know how to explain Dylan Mulvaney, who's running around and now he's getting sports broad deals for Nike and deals with Bud Light. I mean, it is the celebration of the fetish. I'll get into that in another show. You know, there's a really interesting guy, a little bit of a sidetrack. There's a really interesting guy named Larry Cohen. And Larry Cohen helped create a TV series called The Invaders. And The Invaders was, I think, one of Quinn Martin's first productions on, uh, I think it was ABC. And it was a story, to, it was a TV series, lasted two Two seasons about a guy, Roy Thinnis. By the way, today is Roy Thinnis's birthday. And Roy Thinnis plays a, a character who witnesses a UFO landing in kind of in the middle of nowhere. And the people on board this UFO see him, recognize him, and he gets away. And so his job is to tell people about this UFO. Well, along the way, he figures out that it's not just a UFO, but it's an entire race of aliens who look like humans. And they're here to take over the planet. And the following two seasons uh, is about his attempt to alert the world about their presence 
And when you go into some of those episodes, it's like, it's happening now. Like, it's happening now. You just look at these episodes. Like, yep, 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 yep. There's an episode where they take over the media. Sound familiar? Anyway, the reason why I'm bringing up Larry Cohen, and we'll get back to uh, The Clash. Larry Cohen did a movie that uh, I saw when I was in high school. It It was a movie that left a really indelible impression on me. And the movie at that time was called Demon. And it was later changed to God Told Me To. And I may revisit it again next week. Because, and I've talked about this movie before. And again, like he's on it, right? He's talking about a theme that is currently happening in our society right now. And I don't want to blow it. I'm going to tease it a little bit. Um, But it might be worthwhile. Maybe we'll do some more of these these movie breakdowns because God told me to in demon, I think is even more uh, startling and revelatory based on the time we're in. All right. Who else we have British spook baby. Absolutely. That's exactly what he was. I love the theme song, the magnificent seven. Well, you may hear it in a very kind of a different way today. Elmer Bernstein scored. The Seven Samurai, yes, indeed, that's part of the story. Feeling like a stranger in a strange land, and the moon is a harsh mistress. It is it is tough sledding out there. What's going on, Bo? Good to see you. The energy feels wonky today, right? Wow, I had no idea about that side of the clash. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the so Joe Strummer was, uh, what was his band? Was it the 67ers? Or, he was in this band. And he was living in a squat in England. And uh, the 101ers, I think it was the 101ers. I think that was the name of his band, the 101ers. And he was living in a squat with a bunch of people who, in a squat, you know, they, they an abandoned building. They kind of took it over and they had their own little autonomous zone there, right? And the band would play sort of this um, mashup of uh, what used to be called world music. Uh, now we would call it international music because Joe Strummer had traveled all over the world and he was influenced by music from a lot of different cultures. So they would play this kind of Cubano folk rockabilly style of music. And that was his thing. Like he was the lead singer of this band, the one on ers And uh, the manager of the clash came by and saw the show. And uh, he met up with uh, Joe. He brought uh, uh, Nick and Topper and uh, Mick and Topper. Uh, and they brought him along and, and said, Hey, we got this band. We're starting this band. And uh, it's uh, a punk rock band. And you have a lot of energy, and we think you'd be a great addition for the band. Would you like to join the band? Now, Joe Strummer was older than the rest of the guys in the Clash. Uh, and he said, yes, he would. So this was the transformation of Joe Strummer. Cut his hair, left the squat, 
started dressing like a punk rocker and just turned his back. He turned his back on that whole scene. And there were people from the squat, his little community, and, and they would recount how Joe Strummer would pass them on the street in London, and he wouldn't even look at him. He wouldn't say hi. He would just, he just moved on, right? Joe Strummer saw a good cash cow when it uh, came looking for him. All right, who else do we have? Wendy Says is here. Always great to see you and wonderful to have you back. Scrubby's checking in, name calling. Name, no, name checking. I don't say name calling. You don't do that. My P's are already up. Good. Excellent. Crossfire Cat. Yes, certainly feeling the wonky energy. Oh, boy. Wonky donkey in the air. Kelly B, what's happening, Kelly B? You can hear the thunder. There's a storm coming. They had Scuzzo Allen Ginsberg on one recording. Birds of a feather. Sea Pine, some small towns in Minnesota are getting mail delivered once, maybe twice a week. Yes, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that on Tuesday. There's no remaking those mans. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, let's see. Anybody else? Uh, Gigi's on the run. Go, Gigi, go. Go, Gigi, go. Here's my man, Steve. What's going on, Steve? Janet Landers. Checking in from Tejas. What's going on, Janet? Oh, we got Lynn sighting. A lot, a lot of congratulations to Lynn. What's that? The winner of the Orchid Festival, two blue ribbons and one red. You never cease to amaze us. Good job, Lynn. Uh, let's see, who else do we have? Anybody else here? I'll have to rewatch the beginning. Saw the clash in person with Chrissy Hines. and thought they were amazing. Thought they were about freedom, not commies. Another one bites the dust. They were all about. They're just social Marxists. They were Nieben Marxists. That's what they became. That's what happens to all the Marxists. They're in it for the money. You, you think uh, AOC is poor? No, you identify with the oppressed because it's, it's good business. They become oligarchs. Absolutely. Fantastic. Let's see. Who else we have? Paranormal script. I love Clyde. Clyde is so dark. He is so dark. Yeah, there is a Jasper sighting for sure. Uh, Leela's not eating plants now, but she's growing peas. God bless you. I, I don't like tomatoes. But one year in uh, California, I had the best garden. It was incredible. And I grew all these tomatoes. And I grew them for other people. I had so many tomatoes that year. Hucklebuck watching Vader's as a youngin. It's a creepy show, man. Creepy, creepy show. Every time I watched Invaders as a kid, I would get weirded out. The word demon is so confusing. Good or evil, who knows? Maybe both. 
the word demon. Interesting. Uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. Anybody new? Are we on? Are we up to date? We are up to date. Okay. Let's talk about the Magnificent Seven. Let's talk about it. So the Magnificent Seven, I had this. Oh, before I go there, I got to mention True Ham Science. Come on now. My boy, Chris. I'm going to give my shout out. I love going to the site. I love seeing that waterfall. It's, it's my temporary, uh, temporary escape. There it is. It's my, my virtual Xanadu right there. The reality of that is that that place has probably has a lot of fucking bugs. A lot of bugs. You're probably looking around for something that'll fucking kill you, right? <laughs> I mean, it's true. I mean, we can look at it and go, oh, yeah. But the reality might be just a little bit different then. But we'll just stay with the, with the illusion. We'll go with the illusion. Uh, this is not an illusion, though. You'll get some of the best hemp products on the internet at truehempscience.com. And they got edibles, and they're a big part of my life, and and all the goodies, all the goodies right there. Right here, number 19, Hey 19, right there. I a little bottle of that right by my side here in the studio. And uh, there are different blends for different purposes and reasons, different applications. And if you want to find out more about any of this stuff, you can go onto the website and make an appointment to have a consultation with our good friend, Chris, at True Ham Science. And if you spend $100 or more, type in 15MINS. That's 15MINS. And guess what? You'll get free product. Always a good thing. And you'll get, guess what else? Free shipping if you spend $150 or more. Don't sleep on some of the uh, the best hemp products that you can find organically sourced in the process overseen from start to finish by our good friend, Chris, over at True M Science. All right, we did that. So let's talk about the Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven has its roots with another movie. And Tom made a mention of that. And um, that movie is The Seven Samurai, which is a film by Akira Kurosawa, who is one of the great film directors uh, of all time. And just let me get into some of the visuals of The Seven Samurai. So Kurosawa is the inspiration for uh, two two movies that will be these kind of iconic cinematic pieces of the 20th century. And this, this, the Magnificent Seven is iconic. You know, it's it's a it's a western. It's one of the kind of the. I mean, there were other movies kind of like it but nothing quite like assembling a group of men who are all kind of, you know, specialists and badasses 
to uh, go help uh, this uh, little village in Mexico deal with the terrible scourge of the Bandito, played by Eli Wallach. And Eli Wallach would show up later on in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and play an even better character in Tuco. But the other movie that uh, Kurosawa inspired is Star Wars. And the film that uh, inspired Star Wars was The Hidden Fortress. So, so Kurosawa is a huge influence on American cinema. And I'll give you some visuals of The Seven Samurai, and I'll try to encapsulate it. So in The Seven Samurai, we have – here, let me quit this. Give me one second. I don't want it to um, pop up anymore. In The Seven Samurai, the idea here is that Akira Kurosawa winds up here. Let me do the – it's an even better image. Well, it's just got the, the lettering. Um, he accrues six other guys, hence the number seven, and they go to a village who is being raided. The village is being raided for their rice, and you know, the local warlord goes in and uh, beats the shit out of them, kills some people, and steals their rice and forces them to grow their rice for him so he can feed his uh his band of bloody accomplices right that's that's so it's a kind of a parasitic relationship it's a parasitic relationship but what's interesting about the seven samurai is that you're dealing with a heterogeneous or rather a homogeneous culture right the peasants are poor but it's part of the caste system in Japan, which was a real thing, right? They disassembled the caste system or the feudal system. They disassembled that. But it was a thing, right? And there were people who were literally indentured and trying to just kind of carve out a living here. And, uh, and they were at times abused, right? If they weren't abused by the ruling class, they were abused but maybe an outlaw version of the ruling class. And so they would come in and steal their rice. And so this is a story that's heroic. And it's about a group of men who stand up for things that are righteous and true. It is uh, a very iconic, it's an archetypal story. But it's a homogeneous story. It deals with a culture, right? It is a cultural um, theme, struggle. And when it's remade into the Magnificent Seven, it is different. And it's different for a reason. So they're drawing the inspiration from the Seven Samurai. I'm just trying to give you sort of the bedrock or the foundation for it. But the delivery and the, uh, the narrative and the underlying message is very different 
So let's get into it. The Magnificent Seven debuted in 1960, the year that I was born. And it, in a lot of ways, it begins the uh, s- sort of the, the genesis or the model or the archetype of the new Western. I mean, this film is, is emblematic of the new Western. And after this, you'll get uh, Clint Eastwood in the spaghetti Westerns and you'll get a number of other Westerns, Sam Peckinpah, you know, those are not traditional Westerns. Sometimes the heroes aren't really the heroes. Sometimes the the heroes are the anti-hero, but it's this movie that casts the sort of the, uh, it creates the pattern or this uh, new cinematic genre that's about to, about to, uh, you know, make itself known because Westerns were still really popular then, but they were about to take a decidedly left turn in the Magnificent Seven. So let me bring up the the movie itself because I'm going to go through the movie and I'm going to show you why it's different than Kurosawa's film. And, and, and I'll tell you why I'm doing this. Because I actually rewatched, I've seen this movie about half a dozen times. And I almost didn't watch it. I was at my mother's house, but you know, she likes to watch movies. And so I watched it again with her. And I'm like, it's just the light bulb went off of my head. It was like, fuck, what's going on with this movie? Who wrote this movie? And we'll get to that. We will get to who wrote this movie. And it will absolutely 100% validate what I'm saying here. All right, so let's do this. Do the screen share. All right, so I'm going to play a little bit of this. We're about nine minutes into the movie. Uh, Eli Wallach has come to town. Uh, He's threatened the shit. Here, I'll show you. He's threatened the shit out of the the villagers, and he wants their food. And there's some really interesting commentary. I'm going to put my headphones on. There's even interesting commentary about religion in the opening scenes. I'll show. And and, and it, by the way, this movie is written by a fucking Marxist. And how do they feel about religion? I'll play that scene. So here's Eli Wallach. He's come to town, and uh, he's not a good dude. Let's play it up. World, people no longer content with their station in life. Women's fashions, shameless. Cigar. Religion. You'd weep if you saw. No, how come I don't have a screen here? Where's my screen? Let me get rid of this. Give me one sec here. I even nailed it. I got right to that point. Let me see right here. Our true religion is now a thing of the past. Last month we were in San... True religion is now a thing of the past. God damn it. Where's my screen? 
I need to see this thing. Pardon me, God. I didn't mean to take your name in vain there. Here we go. San Juan, reach down, sit down. Reach down, much blessed by God. Big church. Not I hear. Little church, a priest counts twice a year. Big one. You think we find gold candlesticks, poor box filled to overflowing? You know what we found? Brass candlesticks. Almost nothing in the poor box. We, we took it anyway. Do you hear that? It's a commentary about religion. We took it anyway. Why am I not seeing the video here? Oh, I gotta see the video. Let me do this. Hold on one second. Oh. I'm mystified. So there we go. There it is. Let me do the screen share again, see what happens. Give me one sec here. That is really weird. It is not allowing me to show the video. Well, that just outright sucks, doesn't it? I was really depending on this video today. All right. So I may have to go through and just kind of uh, walk you through some of the visuals of the movie and talk about the movie through the visuals can see it here. What happens if I move out of the this format? What happens here? Let's do this. Oh, hold on. I know we took it anyway. I'm trying to show him how little religion some people now have. Thought I could see for myself. That's really weird. I've never encountered this before. I wonder if this is some kind of uh, piece of code that Amazon has. All right. So now I'm going to have to go in and kind of piecemeal this thing. I apologize for that, but I'm going to do it anyway. Let's do this. Let me go to the Magnificent Seven. Let me see if I can find the trailer. Let me at least play the trailer for you. Seven, here we go. Movie. I'll play the trailer. Here, let me play you this scene. All right, I found the scene that I want to play. So I played the intro there with Eli Wallach, and he's got that rant about religion. Now, that's something that a Marxist would include in a script, right? There's no, there's no meaning anymore. There's, there's nothing in religion. It's, it's not silver uh, candlesticks. 
or gold candlesticks. They're plated. The church has taken all the material and spiritual wealth out of the institution. So what happens now is that that uh, that little village sends three guys to cross the border and hire them to defend their village. So keep in mind that the villagers, they're Mexican, from Mexico, and they're poor. That's a very different like tableau than the, the original version where there was this homogeneous narrative going on and it was about the feudal system and, and it's about the oppressed in the feudal system, but it, it it's it doesn't take into like they're you know they're not like Tashiro Mufun is not going to the Philippines to defend a bunch of people in the Philippines that are oppressed, right? It's happening in his own country. So these guys go, these three guys go to uh, this town and they're there to hire anybody who will help them with their cause. And this is a very significant scene because it sets the tone for the movie. And I'm going to play the scene out. And I'm going to break it down and we'll go a little bit further here. Hey, I've been waiting for you. Oh, you did a wonderful job. Hey, I'm sorry, friend, but there'll be no funeral. By the way, this is Kurt Russell's father, Bing Russell. He was a major character actor in dozens and dozens of Westerns. All right, just wanted to throw that in there. What? Well, the grave's dug, and the uh, defunct there is as ready as the embalmers ought to make him, but there'll be no funeral. What's so this is a this is a guy. He's a he's he's a mortician. Runs a funeral parlor, and these guys decided to pay for a funeral. Now I just wanted to go back a little bit here. The the these are the guys from Mexico, right? These are the three amigos. They're there to hire somebody who will protect them in their village. Keep that in mind. And they're watching this whole thing. Here we go. I'm going to shut up and let this scene play out. It's right easy. And bomb is out. will make him, but there'll be no film. What's the matter? Didn't I pay you enough? <laughs> it's not a question of money. For $20, I'd plant anybody with a hoop and holler. But the funeral's off. Uh, how do you like that? I want him buried. You want him buried. And if he could sit up and talk, he'd second a motion. Now, that's as unanimous as you can get. Friend, you behave like a brother and a Christian, but you just don't... Now, look. I'm not looking for any praise. I'm a traveling salesman. Ladies' corsets. I'm walking down the street and a man drops dead right in front of me. For two hours, people kept stepping over and around him without lifting a finger. I'm just doing what any decent man would. Come on, Henry, let's get on the No, stage. wait a minute. This man has to be buried. And soon he's not turning into any nose game. No, I know. I know. I would if I could, but there's an element in town that objects. Objects? To what? 
They say he isn't fit to be buried there. What? In Boot Hill? Why, there's nothing up there but murderers, cutthroats, and derelict old barflies. And if they ever felt exclusive, brother, they're past it now. They happen to be white, friend. And old Sam? Well, old Sam was an Indian. All right, do you see what's happening already? Do you see what's happening already? Like, the people that are buried in Boot Hill are cutthroats. They're knaves. They're, they're bootleggers and the scourge of the earth. But old Sam is an Indian. And uh, they're white. And you can't bury an Indian in even the lowest of the low cemeterial plots. Okay, so they're, they're establishing something here. And these guys are going out of their way to pay for old Sam's funeral. But uh, there are people up there on Boot Hill that don't want that to happen. It'll it'll sell it'll sully the uh, the burial ground. Oh, I'm gonna keep playing this a little more. Well, I'll be damned. I never knew you had to be anything but a corpse to get in a Boot Hill. How long has this been going on? Since the town got civilized. Oh, it's not my doing, boys. I don't like it. No, sir. I've always treated every man the same, just as another future customer. Well, in that case, get that hearse rolling. Our camera driver's quit. He's prejudiced too, huh? Well, well. He's prejudiced too, huh? Do you see this? Do you see this? All right, here we go. Comes to chance of getting his head blown off, he's downright bigoted. Well, get somebody else. There isn't anybody else who'll drive it. So here. Oh, hell. That's all that's holding things up. I'll drive the rig. Enter Yule. Can I borrow that scattergun? No. You're more than welcome. Here's the theme. Hey, now wait a minute there. Listen, this hearse cost me $840 in Denver. It's the only one in the county. I'll be darned if I'm going to turn it over to strangers to be shot at. I'll pay for the damages. I want to see this. Me too. Never rode shotgun in a hearse before. By the way, Yul Brenner hated Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen was always upstaging Yul Brenner. He was always doing something in the scene to draw attention to himself. He hated him. And they wind up having to be the uh, two main characters that actually make it through the entirety of the movie, which is ironic. And up until this point, they don't even know each other, right? So they're motivated by some sense of, well, social justice. Let's keep playing. So, I'm sorry, Yul Brenner would complain that Steve McQueen would do certain things to draw attention to himself, even if he wasn't necessarily the main part of the scene. So I want, I want, I want to show you what Steve McQueen does with the shotgun shells, just to prove that point. It's kind of interesting. Watch this. Never rode shotgun in hers before. see that he shook shook the shotgun shells now i don't know if that was in the script or not but clearly 
as uh, Yul Brenner is about to put the cigar in his mouth, who are you looking at? You're looking at the guy shaking the shotgun shells. All right, here, let's keep going. Letter Buck. Settle down, like. Same all over. Engine lovers! Easy. Just wind. We'll get there. Not getting up there that bothers me. Stand up there that I mind. Coming up behind us on the left. I don't think so. Second story window. Curtain moved. I'm not in a good position. Let him stick his neck out. You elected? No. I got nominated real good. Hey, boys, why don't you just turn around right now? Save yourself a lot of trouble. Sure, huh? Reception committees forming. Hold it. Hold it right there. Anything wrong? Turn that trigger around and get it down the hill. I need six men up here. Okay, so I wanted to play that scene because it establishes something for the movie. First of all, you're dealing with this idea that civilization has crept in to the West. Like, uh, there's nothing happening at Tombstone. There's nothing happening in Dodge. Everybody's settling down. 
And with that comes civilization. And with civilization comes prejudicial attitudes, which is what was talked about in the beginning of the uh, the scene. And then they go up to Boot Hill. And what do they do? They dispatch the evil white guys who don't want some stinking engine buried in a cemetery plot that has been dedicated to uh, murderers and tramps and thieves and bootleggers and the more despicable um, elements of our society, right? So that sets the stage for everything in that Yul Brenner is a man of conscience. He's a man of conscience. And so the three amigos hire him. And um, they don't hire him for much, right? It's like there's not a lot of money involved. People get $20 a day. Or no, $20. I think that's it for the entire thing. And he manages to pull together James Coburn, Robert Vaughn, Charles Bronson, this this movie would be a, a major vehicle for all three of those actors. And then uh, the young guy with the black cowboy hat was Horse Buckles, who was considered the James Dean of Germany. He was a German actor. This was kind of his big break. And what happens in the movie is that they eventually kind of all agree to... Um, to be a part of this experience. They're going to go down there. They're going to help these people and they're going to help them defend their territory. Right. There's a scene in the movie. Um, I get it. Let me see a uh, food scene. Wish I could. I apologize for, some Amazon has got some kind of codec in there that's not allowing me to. Uh... What's interesting about the Magnificent Seven was remade in 2016, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Denzel Washington played the uh, Yul Brenner character. And then there were sequels of the Magnificent Seven. Each one was uh, successively, or, or each one was less successful than the uh than the previous ones this is where uh, e this is where eli wallach talks about religion i found this scene i want to play it for you because it's part of the movie and it, it again it establishes this this marxist theme that's going on here where they're deriding religion Here's the rating. Santos! So much restlessness and change in the outside world. People no longer content with their station in life. Women's fashions, shameless. Cigar. Religion. You'd weep if you saw how true religion is now a thing of the past. Last month we were in San Juan. 
Reach down. Sit down. Reach down. Much blessed by God. Big church. Not like here. Little church. The priest comes twice a year. Big one. You think we find gold candlesticks, poor box filled to overflowing? You know what we found? Brass candlesticks. Almost nothing in the pool box. We took it anyway. I know we took it anyway. I'm trying to show him how little religion some people now have. Thought I could see for myself. Don't see! What if you had to carry my load, huh? The need to provide food like a good father to fill the mouths of his hungry men. Guns, ammunition. You know how much money that costs? Huh? Huh? No. The days of good hunting are over. Once there was horses, cattle, gold, fruit from the trees, no more. Now I must hunt with a price on my head. Rallies at my heels. So that's also a theme in the movie, right? We saw that with Steve McQueen. And Yul Brenner, they're basically saying there's nothing happening there. Like, it's over, right? Even Eli Wallach is saying the same thing. You know, we used to live in a land of plenty. But now, as civilization sets in, in order for me to continue my lifestyle, now I've got a price on my head, right? So, in a weird way, they're, they're telling the truth here. And if you think about it, really think about it, on some level, he's making sense. But that's not the point. The point is that they're taking a shot at religion. Like, it's like, there's, no, there's nothing left anymore. These are, these are all kind of contemporary comments. He's talking about women's fashions, right? Remember, this is 1960, and this is the pivot, right? 1960 is a pivotal year. It's a huge year, right? This is when Kennedy was elected. It's a whole new decade. And it's the insertion of new ideas and new programs. And the Magnificent Seven is a vehicle for, for those ideas in a big, big way. Now, there's a scene in the movie, and I wish I could play it. This was the scene that really tipped me off to the underlying message of the Magnificent Seven. They're in the village, they being Steve McQueen, Yul Brenner, uh, James Coburn, Robert Vaughn, Charlie Bronson, and the other guy whose name I can't remember, Brad Dexter. They're there and they're being fed. And they have all this uh, really tasty food. Let me see if I can find it really quickly, or just give you a visual. I just give you a visual of this thing. Um, they're sitting around and they're getting carne asada and they're getting tortillas and they're getting beans. And somebody says, who's a part of their group, well, the, the, you know what the villagers have, have been eating for the past week? They've been eating nothing but uh, tortillas and, and, a, and a few uh, cups of beans. And, and uh, they all look at each other. 
you know, the hired guns look at each other and, and they realize that they're privileged. That is the message of the scene. They're privileged. And so what do they do? They get up and they start serving the people in the village. This is the scene that I'm talking about. It's right here. This is the scene I'm talking about. I think I found the visual for it. Let's see what we have here. Give me one second. Oh, Brad Dexter plays Harry Luck. That's his name. I just want to get you a visual of the food scene. Is this it here? It's close to it. Let me just throw this up there. This, uh, this is, this is, this is the food scene. It's right here. right here well why the fuck is he talking about this so this is the food scene and <clears throat> they're going to stop eating and then they start serving the villagers with their food Why is it important in Marxism, particularly a brand of Marxism that we've explored with the Krimis through uh, Paulo Freire and some of these other um, post-Marxist theorists, is that you have to identify with the oppressed. And that's exactly what happens. They wind up identifying with the oppressed. And so as they identify with the oppressed, they share their few their food, right? It is a communal act. And I thought to myself when I saw this, what the fuck is going on here? Like, I've seen this script. I've read about this script. I know this script. Now, what's interesting about the movie in and of itself, right? If you go back and look at The Seven Samurai, which is a homogeneous film dealing with feudalism, dealing with uh, resources, and even to some degree indentured servitude, which goes along with feudalism. But it's homogeneous. Now, they could have written this script in The Magnificent Seven that might have reflected that. They might, it might have reflected a group of um, settlers. This is not an uncommon theme with some movies, by the way. Settlers have farmland. And of course, you have the bad guys that will come in and then they'll uh, take anything they want by any means necessary, right? But if they did that, it would reflect this kind of homogeneous 
um, narrative, right? That's what it would do. But they didn't do that. They specifically chose this Mexican village. Specifically chosen because, because number one, right, we're going to be dealing with things like what? Immigration. That is coming, right? The huge immigration wave is about to start to uh, hit the United States. That's number one. And number two, these people are way more oppressed, both economically and oppressed in a way where there's no rule of, uh, of order or law. So this is the script instead of just making it, you know, a couple of uh, quote unquote pioneer or white families on the outskirts of the town. No, this is, this is intentional. So what they will do is they will, there's no money involved. Really. They get $20. And all these guys are there for, I don't know what their motivations are. Robert Vaughn's character is, he's pathetic. He's a gunfighter who's lost his conscience and his nerve and his soul. They all have their various reasons for, I guess, signing up for this thing, which is really, it really makes no sense in a lot of ways. And even the, the exposition of the various members of the Magnificent Seven you never really get the sense that they're doing it because they have some kind of high moral value or standard. It's not really clear what their motivations are. Maybe they don't have anything else to do. Maybe they're running from themselves. Right? There's some, you know, in Steve McQueen's case, he's got no money. He loses his money at a saloon and Yul Brenner's drinking with the Mexicans and he sees it and he says, I'll buy you a drink if you uh, come on over here and talk with us. And basically says to Steve McQueen's character, hey, you want to be a part of this? Well, I got no money. Well, I'll pay you $20. I guess I'm here. Let's have a drink and let's do it, right? This is how it all goes down. You never really get the sense from any of the characters. There's Brad Dexter. There's uh, Charles Bronson. There's Joel Brenner. There's Steve McQueen, you're missing Robert Vaughn, and you're missing uh, James Coburn and Horse Buckles. Horse Buckles' character, his motivation is he wants to become a man. And by doing this, this is going to be the thing that will help him become a man, right? That's about the only character that you really understand his motivation with. Maybe somewhere inside Yul Brenner, he's got a, a sense of social justice, right? But it's a really fascinating scene. They give up their own food and start serving. They start, they start, ser literally, they serve them. The kids come over and they serve the beans and the tortillas and the carne asada. Who's the one that brings it up? It's Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson brings it up. And they get all guilty about it. They feel guilty. Oh my God. We have so much and they have so little. Let's serve them. Then, of course, the uh, big finale happens, the big shootout, and out of the Magnificent Seven, three survive. Spoiler alert. Steve McQueen, Yule Brenner, and Horse Buckles. Horse Buckles winds up moving to the village where he uh, has fallen in love with a beautiful young village woman. That is really the consummation of the social experiment 
where these two worlds come together and they become the seed of a new culture. That's really the underlying message. So I'm watching the movie and I'm thinking, this is, this is not what this movie is supposed to be, or at least what we thought it was, this, you know, this amalgamation of men who decided that, uh, you know, there was evil in the world and, you know, they were going to stand up for evil because they were men of conscience. Again, when you look at the characters, I never get that sense. I never get the sense that they're real true men of conscience. They're all kind of there because life has kind of dealt them a weird hand. And it's like, what the hell? I'm in. It may be somewhere along the way, the light bulb goes off in the head and they find a reason, a raison d'etre for standing up for this group of people and sacrificing their lives sacrificing, you know, their quote unquote culture inheritance for those that have less than themselves. This is the message of the magnificent seven. It's the message. And I thought to myself, well, who wrote this movie? And when I drill down, ah, I got my answer. I'll show you. Let's go to the Wikipedia page. So here we go. Directed by John Sturgis. Screenplay by William Roberts. Uncredited. Uncredited. So William Roberts takes the credit. But this is the guy we want to focus on. Walter Bernstein. Born August 20th, 1919. Died January 23rd, 2021. So this guy just kicked it not long ago. Was an American screenwriter and film producer who was blacklisted by the Hollywood movie studios in the 1950s because of his views on drumroll, please, communism. Some of his most notable works included The Front, Yanks, and Little Miss Marker. He, is a, he was a recipient of the Writers Guild of America Awards, including the Ian McClellan Hunter Award and the Evelyn F. Berkey Award. Bernstein was born August 20th. It's interesting that Elmer Bernstein created the score for the Magnificent. I don't think they're related, by the way. Born August 20th, 1919, in Brooklyn, New York, to Eastern European immigrants, Hannah Nebestrong and Louis Bernstein, a teacher. He studied at the Erasmus High School in Flatbush after graduating from high school. He went on to study a six-month immersive language course at the University of Grenoble, where he lived with a French family. How does this happen? How does this happen? How does the son of poor immigrants wind up in Grenoble, France? I'll tell you how. It's a tap on the shoulder. It says, hey, come on over here. We have plans for you. This is the uh, uh, Angela Davis story where he lived with a French family who were acquaintances of his father. It was here 
that he was exposed first to communist ideas. He returned to the United States and attended Dartmouth College, where he gained his first writing job as the film reviewer for the campus newspaper, where he joined the Young Communist League. He graduated from Dartmouth in 1940. In February 1941, Bernstein was drafted in the U.S. Army, eventually attaining the rank of sergeant. He spent most of World War II as a correspondent on the staff of the Army newspaper, Yank. I guess that's where he got his uh, screenplay for Yanks. Filling dispatches from Iran, Palestine, Egypt, North Africa, Sicily, and Yugoslavia. He wrote of his experiences of Palestine in an article titled War in Palestine. Bernstein wrote a number of articles and stories based on his experiences in the Army, some of which originally appeared in The New Yorker. These were collected in Keep Your Head Down, his first book published in 1945. Bernstein first came to Hollywood in 1947 under a 10-week contract with writer-producer Robert Rosine, or Rosen at Columbia Pictures, working uncredited for All the King's Men. A very good movie, by the way, with Broderick Crawford. I highly recommend the movie. It's a map about a man of the people gone wrong. After that, he worked uh, for producer Harold Heck, which resulted in his first screen credit, shared with Ben Maddow for their adaptation of the Gerald Butler novel for the film Kiss the Blood Off My Hands for Universal. In 1950, because of his numerous left-wing political affiliations and related activities, his name appeared in the publication Red Channels resulting in his blacklisting by Hollywood studios as part of the McCarthy era actions against individuals with communist affiliations. Throughout the 1950s, however, he managed to continue writing for television, both under pseudonyms and through the use of fronts, non-blacklisted individuals who would permit their names to appear on his work. That's the Magnificent Seven, by the way. In this manner, he contributed to television programs of the era, including Danger, the CBS News docudrama series, You Are There, and the mystery series, Colonel March of Scotland Yard. It, had, it has been incorrectly stated in some sources that Bernstein's blacklisting resulted from unfriendly testimony given to the House of Un-American Activities Committee in 1951. But in fact, he was not subpoenaed by the committee until the late 1950s, never actually testified. Bernstein's screenwriting career began to rebound from the blacklist when director Sidney Lumet hired him to write the screenplay for the Sophia Loren movie, That Kind of Woman. He worked on uncredited, uh, worked on credit on the screenplays of The Magnificent Seven. Let me just stop there. The Magnificent Seven. So you wonder where those ideas came from. You wonder where identifying with the oppressed comes from you wonder why the story wasn't about american ranchers pioneer families who were uh, under threat by uh you know bandits or you know the uh, the north american caucasian equivalent of eli wallach no there's a reason why it took place in mexico there's a reason why all of a sudden they realize, man, we got more food than these people. We need to serve them. That's a message in the movie. We need to sacrifice ourselves, our lives for the betterment of the oppressed. 
That is the underlying message of the Magnificent Seven. And a lot of people think it's this great kind of Western shoot 'em up iconic. Yeah, it is to some degree. But that's not really the meat of the message. And when you go, go back to the beginning of the show and listen to The Magnificent Seven by The Clash, they're telling you that. They're absolutely 100% telling you that. Why? Because their manager figured it out and said, we're going to do a song called The Magnificent Seven. And we're going to spill the beans. It's all there. It's all in the Clash song. It's exactly what it's about. And that's what this movie's about. And this is just one of any number of movies that have played part of our social conditioning. And we don't even know it. Right? It took me five times at least to watch this movie. It took me some, like, you know, getting in the trenches and understanding critical theory in social Marxism to see when I saw that scene, it's like, bingo, this is the meat of the movie. Who wrote the movie? Oh, good old Walter Bernstein blacklisted. That's who wrote the movie. Now, do you think this is a conspiracy? Do you think I'm just paranoid that I, that I'm looking for a commie around every corner that there's one underneath every bed. By the way, that's another movie. Maybe we should just do kind of a theme like this for the next couple, next few shows. It's another movie, which I'll get into maybe at some point. One under every bed. So my paranoid, am I crazy? Am I putting together pieces that, uh, Trying to force fit. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And this movie happens in 1960. It is the beginning of a new decade. And it's always those decades where there's a new president that's elected and they roll out the new, the new pogrom or the new program. It's interesting how those words are kind of linked in their own way. Anyway. I had the epiphany and I wanted to do a show about this. And I, and I hope that without the aid of Amazon that I've been able to demonstrate this and how many people just saw this movie and said, great Western. I was one of them until about the fifth time I saw it. And then the light went off in my head. I'm like, this is fucking propaganda. The Magnificent Seven is propaganda. And the clash, we're letting you know exactly what was going on there. All right. Thanks for uh, in, let it, uh, thanks for indulging me with this show. I know it's not topical. I know it's not the news of the day. And trust me, there's plenty we can talk about. But sometimes I don't always like to talk about the news of the day because a lot of other people do. And uh, today we uh, kind of broke down a small bit. And it's everywhere. It is everywhere. Music, cinema, fashion, art. It's all there. 
So hopefully you're a little more aware and awake after uh, deconstructing what is, you know, arguably considered a classic, iconic, modern Western. Now you know a little bit different. All right. Thanks for being here. Um, we'll be back tomorrow over on YouTube with our good friends, the Crimmies. And they're going to tell us how we can maximize our yields from our gardens. And uh, it'll be a really uh, interesting show. I always love hanging out with them. And uh, we always learn something when uh, they pop up on the uh, Friday forecast. So please join us over there. Thanks again for being here. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to stay open what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Take care. And bye for now.